Turn with me to the book of John. We're in chapter 7. We're actually going to finish chapter 7, except for one verse. We're going to leave a a verse hanging there at 7.53 this morning, but you'll see why next week. Jesus has been teaching in the temple. He's been in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. He's been interacting with multiple groups within the crowd. We've been walking through this, seeing all these different reactions to these different teachings of Jesus. One One of the groups is the religious leaders. They are actually having the most negative reaction to Jesus out of any of the groups. There are some that are confused and questioning, but the religious leaders are not confused. They view Jesus as a deceiver. They view him as somebody that needs to be taken out. So they've put a plan in motion to take him into custody. The the problem is, is Jesus just keeps making matters worse. He kind of keeps pushing the envelope a little bit, and that's actually not a problem. Jesus is doing what he should do. But if you recall that last week in verse 37, at <clears throat> one of the highlights of the feast, one of the peak moments of the feast, Jesus stands up on ver- in verse 37, and on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in him would receive for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so this morning, we're gonna look at the aftermath of that statement. That's a pretty bold statement. That's a bold declaration. We'll talk a little bit more about it again this morning, but we're gonna see there's really three different responses. Some of the crowd is gonna believe. Some are confused and they're not sure what to believe. They They know that Jesus is unique, but they can't quite identify him. They're not confident in their identification. And then we're going to see the third group. They're angry and they're violently scheming. So you you see this schismatic responses, right? That's that's a big word. It's actually a word. I looked it up. It it, it creates this division in responses. And we're going to see that here this morning as we walk through this passage. And so uh, in verse 40, we read this. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, truly, this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. Now, you're going to notice right here in this verse, you've got this word many. And and what's interesting about that is there was a lot of people responding positively to Jesus. It wasn't a small amount of people. It's a lot of people. Now, that's interesting because those who have been through the study in chapter 6, what happened up near the Sea of Galilee? Jesus lost a bunch of disciples. Now he's come down to Jerusalem at the feast, and now this momentum is starting to build again. There's a lot of positive volition. And the reason for that, we see from the verse, is they had heard this saying. This saying refers to what Jesus just said in verses 37 and 38. It was this declaration that anybody who was thirsty could come to him and believe in him for living water. When we talk about these people, these were probably the same people who had anticipated his arrival earlier. We saw that back in verses 11 through 13. They had listened to his teaching earlier. They were somewhat confused. They weren't quite putting the pieces together. And they were surprised that the religious leaders had not taken him captive yet because they knew how much they hated him. So it's probably the same group. They're, they're a little shocked. But when they heard this saying, when they, when they heard Jesus get up and make this bold declaration, they were moved. And even for a Jewish mind during the Feast of Tabernacles, we talked about that water-pouring ritual That happened every day at the morning feast, one time, and then on the seventh day, it happened seven times. It was a very moving experience for most Jews. It's for Jesus to step right into that moment and say, I'm the water. I'm salvation was a big, big deal. So they start reacting here. And remember, Jesus is is basically, when he stood up, he's claiming that he's the fulfillment of the feast. Isaiah 55, 1, which is what they said as the water was coming up, was, ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. What did Jesus say? Anyone who thirsts, come to me. See, he's connecting himself to this feast and this, this water pouring ceremony. Isaiah 12, 3, therefore with joy, they, were, they would yell this out as they were walking up the hill. Therefore with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. You can see Jesus is inserting, I'm the fulfillment of this, guys. And so they're, they're moved by this. Some of them are reacting positively to what Jesus is saying. Now, They're pretty sure that he's special. That's what we're going to see here because they start identifying him with special characters as prophesied in the Old Testament, but they're really unsure exactly who he was. And and just as as a side note, the word said there, it's in the imperfect tense. They kept on saying they kept on talking about it. They, they, you couldn't shut them up. They just kept on saying and discussing these things. Okay. And this is what we, we see. And so the first group, they say, oh, Jesus, 
oh yeah, this is the prophet. And notice again, uh, it's, it's the prophet, it's not a prophet. That's, that's the problem with a lot of world religions. They kind of like Jesus. Yeah, he's a prophet. No, no, no. He's the prophet. That's what this is saying. This is what they are saying here. It's significant that they're identifying him this way. In fact, they're identifying Jesus as the prophet that Moses identified and spoke of in, in Deuteronomy 18. Moses said there would be a prophet coming after him, the prophet that would do certain things. In fact, let me pull up Deuteronomy 18, 15, and 18. This is Moses speaking here in verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. And now the Lord is speaking to Moses in verse 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And there's a couple of things that we learn about this prophet, this specific prophet that the Jewish people were looking for. Like Moses, he would be from their midst. He'd be amongst their brethren. He would be Jewish. That's what he's saying there. Second, like Moses, God would put words in this prophet's mouth. Now, by the way, that first point there, a lot of us just roll our eyes at that. Well, of course he's going to be Jewish. But do you know that there, there are many Jews that walk around today in the world that if you go up to them and ask them if Jesus was Jewish, they'll tell you no. They think he was a Gentile. Because that's what, they're t- that's what they're taught. Imagine getting that teaching early on. I mean, you would completely write off Jesus because you're like, oh, he's not the prophet because the prophet has to be Jewish. Well, he was Jewish. This is what Moses is saying. God would put words in this prophet's mouth. Third, like Moses, the prophet would faithfully communicate all that God had given him to communicate. What does Jesus keep claiming through his life? The words that I speak are coming from the Father. I'm from heaven. I'm from the Father. I'm from the heart of the Father. I'm communicating his words. All along the way, identifying himself that he is this man. And so you put all these descriptions together and what do you get? You get a prophet like Moses who is close, near, uh, and in direct communication from God to the people. Remember the Jewish people at, at, at Mount Sinai, they said, don't, don't let God talk to us. You talk to us, Moses. We don't, want, we don't want to hear that thundering voice anymore. We're too frightened. You just, you go get it and bring it back to us. And so there's a uniqueness there in the ministry of Moses that this prophet that Moses prophesied would come would have. And so some people are saying, I think Jesus is the prophet. This is who they're identifying him with. This was a great debate. Even in Jesus' day, people would debate this all the time, exactly who he was, who he was connected with. Some people thought he was the Messiah. Some people thought he was separate from the Messiah. There was just this great theological debate going on in this day. And so again, some thought he was distinct from the Messiah. Some thought he was the Messiah. Some even thought that the prophet would be Jeremiah raised. Now, I don't know why Jeremiah. I mean, there's so many other prophets to choose from, but they thought Jeremiah would be raised from the dead in return and be the prophet. So this is all going through the mind of the people here. So there's a lot of debate. Even when you said the prophet, people are like, well, what do you mean by that? You mean this, this, this. So they're kind of going around. This group, apparently, in terms of the argument, because of the very next phrase, they're kind of confused. They don't think the prophet's the Messiah. They think those are two distinct people or two distinct entities because the very next phrase is, others said, this is the Christ. Now, what's really fascinating, we won't get into this, but when Peter preaches a sermon in Acts 3, and I've got the verses up there if you want to look them up, and then when Stephen preaches his sermon in Acts 7, both of them identify Jesus Christ as the prophet. They see the Messiah and the prophet as one and the same. And that's how, obviously, we would understand it, is that Jesus was the prophet that Moses spoke of, and he's also the Messiah. That brings us to the second question, or the second discussion. Some said he's the Christ. And so again, this shows us there was some confusion as to who the Christ was, who the prophet was, how they related. But you can see the the crowd is positively, I mean, both of those are compliments. The prophet or the Messiah, they're just kind of confused as to exactly who he is. And again, what what motivated them to say it? It was this saying. It was what Jesus said in verse 37 through 38. It was dramatic enough that he put, he brought them to a point of decision. They said, we've got to make a decision on this man. So let's hash it out who he is. And this is kind of what it did. And one of the things that you see is to say that Jesus is the Christ was to say that he was the long-awaited Messiah. And this is kind of the direction the rest of the conversation goes this morning. They're like, wait a minute, he can't be the Messiah. Well, maybe he can be the, well, no, he can't be. And it's just kind of back and forth, this discussion on the Christ. Now, if he is the Christ, that's saying a lot for a Jewish mind because when you talk about the Old Testament, we looked at that in the gospel this morning during communion. 
But God prophesied all along the way. He, led, he left breadcrumbs, if you will, in the Old Testament to point to Jesus Christ. But the breadcrumbs go all the way back to Genesis 3.15. We understand that, right? That when Adam and Eve sinned, God promised a coming deliverer to destroy Satan and destroy the sin problem. He did that in Genesis 3.15. And we've looked at that before during Christmas, but he, he also promises that it would be of her seed, not their seed, her seed, virgin birth, all the way back in Genesis 3.15. God knows the future from the past, so why does that shock us that he can predict things so accurately? It's just, it's amazing. But this messianic prophecy is all throughout the Old Testament, pointing all the way back. And so some of these Jews are minded, they're, they're watching Jesus and they're saying, this is the guy. This is exactly who we've been studying all our life. This, he fulfills all of it. And this is where they're coming in. And so this crowd seemed to be rightfully convinced by two things. And I say rightfully because a lot of people in our day try to put some kind of faulty notion that if someone believed in Jesus and the scriptures because of miracles, that that was somehow a faulty faith. It wasn't a faulty faith. That's the whole purpose of the book of John. Remember John 20, 30, and 31? These things I've written to you, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. He hand-selected seven signs to convince people to trust in Jesus Christ. He wants the signs to be convincing. This is the two things that these people are picking up. Jesus's words, right? Verse 15, they said, how does this man know letters having never studied? We see later the guards are going to say, no man ever spoke like this man. Verse 40, it's this saying, right? This, they heard this saying, they heard his teaching. This is convincing to them. And then the second, Jesus' signs and wonders. If you go back to verse 31, they say, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? And see, these things were designed to validate Jesus. They were designed to verify his message, to show that he wasn't some charlatan. He wasn't just trying to squeeze a dollar out of everybody, that he was actually the legitimate predicted Messiah from heaven. And some people said, this is him, right? This is the Christ. They're starting to, to see that. And so this group of average Jews, as they look at the life of Jesus, his teaching, what he just said, all the miracles, they are responding positively, but they're confused. They're a little bit confused, but they're, they are responding positively. In fact, a lot of people in our day respond very positively to Jesus. They're like, oh yeah, good dude. Solid guy. This kind of attitude. They're, they're responding positively, but now... It's unfortunate because they're going to throw a little mud in the water. The water was already a little murky. <laughs> they're a little confused. But it's like, hey, let's clear this up by throwing a little bit more mud into the water. And the mud here is going to be tradition. It's going to be the mud of tradition, religious tradition. It wasn't like someone came in at this moment and said, hey, let's go commit adultery. Let's go sin. Let's go smoke let's, and distract you from Jesus. No, they throw mud in by bringing in religious tradition of the Jews, and now it gets super confusing. And we're going to see that develop. By the way, can tradition still muddy spiritual truth today? Yeah. That's why people can go to a church and think that if they light a candle, that that somehow is going to impact their eternal destiny. Without the lighting of candle, there's no forgiveness of sin. No. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. What? Tradition just messes up everything sometimes, and we need to be careful that we're not so hung up on tradition that we don't see the truth of the Word of God. There's nothing spiritual about three songs and a sermon. There's nothing spiritual about standing up. And one day we should, we'll put the pulpit back there just to mix it up, you know? There's, there's nothing, tradition needs to be fooied on for the sake of the word of God. And so we're going to see that they are just like many of us. Tradition muddies the waters. And they've got this unfortunate misunderstanding. We're going to spend a lot of the, the rest of the morning looking at this. But in verse 41, some said, well, will, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? We've got this third group now. They shoot down even considering Jesus Christ as the Christ. They just, they just shoot it down because of where he was from and where he grew up. And one of the things that we've seen throughout the book of John is it, it was fairly known where Jesus was from. Remember, Galilee is up north. So by the Sea of Galilee, Nazareth is up there. Bethlehem is more to the west uh, of Jerusalem, I think Southwest. So he's like, wait a minute, he's not even from the right area, therefore he could never be the Christ. And this was their argument. In fact, if you jump down to verse 52, it's going to be the same argument the religious leaders use. In fact, they're going to use it in a sarcastic way. They're going to tell Nicodemus, search and look for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. 
You know, if you're looking for the Messiah out of Galilee, you're, you're looking at the wrong place. It should be over in Bethlehem. Here's where they get a little off kilter due to their tradition. The confusion that they have was due to a lack of being technically, under, uh, technically sound in their understanding of the origin of the Messiah. They, in other words, they weren't technically sound. You, you might say they weren't paying attention to the details. Do we do that sometimes in our Bible study? We do. We do that a lot. And it's not until someone observes the text, we go, oh, I've never seen that before. You're exactly right. We come to the word of God sometimes. We look at a passage. We say, this is the interpretation. I would die on a hill on this. And then someone points out something. You're like, oh, never mind. (laughs) Maybe it's that. And this is what the Jewish religious leaders were doing. It's good to be clear on details. It's good to make distinctions when you're studying the Bible. Because if, if you don't, you're going to be close. You're going to be close to the truth. But as they say, close is only good in horseshoes and hand grenades. That's the only time close is good. Every other time, close means you're wrong. You're not even second. You're wrong, right? And and, and this is one of those situations where they were close, but they were wrong. They were dead wrong. And in that sense, they were so far from the truth. Technically, Micah 5.2, we all know this. In fact, we're going to as we go into the Advent season, we're going to read this verse a number of times. But Micah 5, 2 said what? That the one to be ruler in Israel would be out of Bethlehem. That's the exact wording, out of Bethlehem. And based upon this wording, the Jewish religious elite did not consider that the Messiah could be born there or, and grow up or be from somewhere else. In other words, he could be born in Bethlehem, but he could actually grow up somewhere else. They didn't even take that that possibility into consideration. They saw he's out of Bethlehem. He's got to be born there. He's got to grow up there and he's got to start his ministry from there. And if he doesn't, then he's not the Messiah. You've seen it was based on a faulty uh, interpretation of Micah 5.2, which is crazy because that verse was designed to convince them of who Jesus was. And it was the very verse they used to deny who he was. Just, Just incredible. They simply assumed that this verse meant the Messiah would be born there, grow up there, likely start his ministry there. Some of you know that I was born in the Philippines. Both of my parents were in the military. They, my mom happened to get pregnant with me while they were stationed in the Philippines. I was actually born, born at Clark Air Force Base at Clark Hospital, ironically enough. But I always get a kick growing up. I would tell people that, and they were like, oh, I didn't know you were Filipino. I'm not Filipino. <laughs> My dad grew up in Montana. My mom grew up in Texas. I'm, I'm as American as, well, I don't know, apple pie? I don't know. I mean, I'm not Filipino, but there was this assumption that I was born there that, I'm, that I was from there. I mean, I don't even remember the Philippines. I, we left when I was a young baby. But I was born there, but I grew up somewhere else. And oftentimes, the, this misassociation with Jesus, especially here, they're just assuming too much. And they're not even taking into consideration that they might have the wrong interpretation. That's what's crazy uh, here. And, and there was also a tradition in Jewish teaching at this time that no one would know exactly where the Messiah was, was from, that he would just appear out of nowhere one day, poof. And they, whoa, I, I don't even know where this guy came from. I don't know his parents. I don't know his brothers. So that was also swirling in the minds of the Jewish people today. So they're making a poor assumption here. They're making a poor assumption based on their own traditions, based on rabbinical teaching. But then in their very next breath, they ask a very good question, and they should have explored it further. They're going to ask a good question. They're going to, answer, uh, they're going to ask a not-so-good question. The good question first, uh, as we see here, was simply this. Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David, from the town of Bethlehem, where David was. And so they asked this two-part question. First question, good one. Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the seed of David? Yes, a thousand percent true. That's exactly what the scriptures say. The Messiah would come from the seed of David. Clear as a button. In fact, as you go through the Davidic covenant found in 2 Samuel 7, predicts an eternal ruler from the lineage of David. This is the Messiah. That's predicted in the Davidic covenant. You go to Jeremiah 23, describes the descendant of David as a king and the Lord, our righteousness. This is the Messiah. You go to Isaiah 11, which is always a fun passage because it describes the descendant of David as also the root of David's father, Jesse. How do you branch and root? Well, because you're the God man. (laughs) 
You, you're, you, you are from eternity past. You've never had a beginning. And yet you entered the world at a point in time in history in a human body. That's how that works. And so this descendant and root of David would rule the earth in righteousness. The Gentiles will seek him. Again, this is the Messiah. And here's what's really sad. Great question. By the way, could they have gotten an answer to this? History tells us they could have. Walked down to the temple get into the genealogical records which were kept at the temple, meticulous genealogical records. They were there until the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. That's when they were lost. Meticulous records. They could have gone back. They had impeccable genealogical records. They could have looked at Jesus, traced him back up and said, he's not even the seed of David. We don't have to pay attention to this guy. But you know what's so interesting throughout all of the gospels? As much opposition as Jesus faced, as much uh, protagonism, antagonism that he faced from all of the Jewish religious leaders, guess what? They never brought up. They never brought up his genealogy because his genealogy was solid. From both his father's side, which was not his biological father, but from a legal Jewish perspective, he was of the line, uh, lineage of David. And then we see Mary's lineage also in Luke 2, also of the lineage of David. They couldn't bring it up because it wasn't a good argument. In fact, if they brought it up, they would get shut down immediately. So they ask a great question here. They could have, should have explored that. They would have said, ooh, he does check that box. And you know what else they should have asked him? Where were you born? Ooh, that checks that. <laughs> but they don't even take the time to ask that. They just know he grew up in Galilee. So they're like, oh, he can't be, because he's supposed to be out of Bethlehem. So you see how they're, they're just moving forward and, and, and they're close. They're so close, but based on their tradition, they're so far Away. Here's the not so good question. Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the town of Bethlehem? Again, where David was. Technically, again, this was accurate, but it didn't take into consideration all of the interpretive options on Micah 5 2, which we've delineated. Was there faulty interpretation, a possibility? Total possibility. Let's not act like that. They're complete fools. That's a possible interpretation that he was born there, that he would grow up there, that he would start his ministry from Bethlehem. That is a possible interpretation, but it wasn't the only one. It wasn't the only one that they should have taken into account and considered. In fact, when they start asking Jesus, they say, wait a minute, you were born in Bethlehem. You didn't grow up there, but you are healing blind people. You are healing lame people. You are healing deaf people. Maybe that's what Micah 5, 2 meant, just that he was born. You know, they, instead of working that direction, they just worked from, from there forward and said, nope, can't possibly it. I don't care what he does, what he says, where, what he accomplishes. I'm just going with the fact that he didn't grow up in Bethlehem. Like to them, that was the ace card for this group. Based on Matthew 2, 4 through 6, clearly the scholars understood that Micah 5, 2 predicted the Messiah's birth in Bethlehem. This was an, an understood understanding in that day. We, we see that in Matthew 2, 4 through 6, when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ, the Messiah, was to be born. So they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So did they understand that the Messiah would be born there? They did. They just thought he also had to be from there. That was where they were faulty in their assumptions. Again, they assumed he would grow up there, be from there. It's so interesting because this was the religious legalist mindset in a lot of things, right? They, they had a faulty Sabbath interpretation, but they wouldn't even consider they had a faulty Sabbath interpretation. They had a faulty interpretation of Micah 5 too, but they wouldn't even consider alternatives to their interpretation. It's not like we're, we're telling them to, it's not like they have to take some interpretation that doesn't make sense. It's just that there were options. There was some clarity needed when the event happened to, to really point out what exactly was meant. And they wouldn't even Consider it. And like I said before, Micah 5.2 was one of the passages that was designed to convince them of the Messiah. They were using it as a passage to convince them that he wasn't the Messiah. So the very opposite was, was happening. And so uh, it's just so tragic in this case, and it's, and it's so tragic in our day when tradition actually disrupts biblical information the way it's supposed to be understood. It's just sad. It's just, it's sad because in the area of eternal destiny, close is not going to make it. Either you've got a substitute who paid for your sins, you possess a righteousness equal to God's by trusting in him alone, or you don't. Close isn't going to cut it 
for eternal destiny. And so in these areas, we want to be clear and precise. And what a great example of a group who wasn't clear and precise. And the fact that they are missing the very Messiah literally standing in front of them. You know, some people today would, would give anything to have Jesus standing in front of them, to talk to him, to question him, to see if this is indeed true, to, to ask him all the questions. This group had it, they didn't do it because he didn't grow up in Bethlehem. That was their ace card. That's what they kept coming back to, convincing themselves this couldn't be him. So it's so tragic. And we see these schisms start to develop and, and they're caused by Jesus. They're caused by his teaching, which is not a bad thing that people are taking into account what's going on. And so in verse 43, we see there was division among the people because of him. Now, some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. This division again came through Jesus and his ministry. It's the Greek word schism. It's a schisma. It's where we get our word schism from. It's used three times in the book of John. You can kind of see the passages. And it just shows the amount of just diametrically opposed views that Jesus and his message brings. In fact, if we fast forward 30 years, you know, Paul is in a synagogue at Thessalonica, and it brings it out clearly in Acts 17, 1 through 5. Paul's in a synagogue there, and he begins to preach that this Jesus is the Christ. And you see the exact same reactions. Some people say, as I like to joke, for some in the group, all heaven broke loose. For others, all hell broke loose. And it it was the same exact message. Some people loved it and responded to it. Some people hated it and wanted to kill Paul. And this is what Jesus Christ does. He, He does. This message causes divisions because it's an exclusive message. And either you're on the right side of the message or you're on the wrong side of the message. You're on the right side of the message or the left side of the message. You can't be both and or here. It's in a very exclusive thing. Either you're trusting in Christ alone to get you to heaven or you're trusting in him and something else or you're just trusting in something else completely. There's no closeness in this message. You're either trusting in the Savior or you're going to have to save yourself. And saving yourself ain't going to work out too well according to the Bible because you don't possess the righteousness needed and you've got a death penalty hanging over your head that you will have to pay for eternity. So why not trust the Savior? That's, that's the encouragement, right? God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. He's made, it, he's made it so that nobody has to go there and pay for their own sins. And this is the good news of the gospel. But, but you can see this division caused through his life and ministry. In fact, the debate centered around his identity. It, it was, who is this guy? Can we trust him? Should we trust him? Is he trustworthy? This is what was being debated. There was another faction, though, and we picked that up here in this verse that was a little bit more nefarious. This group, they're just debating. They've got a schism, but it's not, they're not trying to kill anybody. They're just they're having a, a heated debate. And if you've ever been in a Mediterranean culture or third world culture and you've ever been in a marketplace, I mean, if people did what... what here, what they did there, you'd think they're about to fight. You'd be pulling out your phone. You'd be like, I'm about to get a YouTube video, viral video here of these people fighting because they debate everything. They debate everything. You go to a market, they're yelling at each other, debating the price. You go over here. I, I remember I was in Sierra Leone one time. We were in a marketplace and they literally assigned me a Sierra Leonean to, to buy some things. And I'm like, I don't need, I don't need him. I'm just going to go shop. And he's like, no, you need me. And they, and they, and I start buying some, like, how much is that? Well, first of all, he said, don't ask him any questions. Let me ask, you tell me what you want and I'll, and I'll point it out. I was like, this is, I'm not three years old. You know, I'm thinking to myself, this guy's like, how much, how much is that? You know, up there. And the guy's like $15. And then, and then he, he'd come around the corner and be like, Hey, it's $15. Do you want it? And I was like, yeah, let me get it. I would come around the, the corner and the guy would be like, Oh yeah. Oh, that one. Yeah. That one's $45. And my Sierra Leonean guy would not put up with that. Like he was, and they would get into these shouting matches back and forth. And then I would, I would end up walking away with it for $15. Some of these cultures, this is not, they, they're not going at each other, but they're, it's a heated, passionate debate. This is what's going on with Jesus. Another faction in the group is much more nefarious. And this is what we see from the religious leaders. They wanted to take him. They wanted to bring him into custody. They had made up their minds much earlier that Jesus just needed to be removed off the scene. Not, not debated or discussed, killed and moved off the scene. All the way back in John 5, 18, they wanted to 
kill Jesus. Jesus was slow coming to the Feast of Tabernacles because he knew, he knew that they wanted to murder him. The people in Jerusalem knew that the leaders hated him so much that they wanted to murder him. All those passages there that I've got listed in chapter 7 show that out. And so this is that group. They're finally putting their plan into action. It says they wanted to take him. It was their will. It was their active volition. It's used in the imperfect tense. They kept on wanting to take him. They continually looked for opportunities to take him. This was the mindset of the religious leaders at this time. But then we get this phrase, and it's just so amazing as you walk in the life, as you see in the life of Jesus. We're going to look at some more at the end of chapter 8. There's a group. They start picking up stones to stone him, and Jesus just strolls right through them. No problem. No one laid hands on them. Everyone, this group wanted hands laid on them. They had given orders to seize him and to bring him into custody, and yet no one was doing it. No one would do it. And we've kind of looked at this before. It's a fascinating statement because here they are, the, the leaders of the people, they want him brought into custody, and they quite frankly can't get him into custody. You know, so you imagine a police officer, a police chief telling his police officers, hey, you go over to this address and I want you to bring that guy in. He's a dangerous criminal. He's a deceiver. He's very dangerous. Go get him. And the police officers come back and say, well, he was there, but man, I ain't never heard anyone talk like this guy before. <laughs> the police chief would be like, Who, I don't care how he talks. Go get the guy and bring him in. But that's exactly what we're going to see. And so as we've said before, there's a reason for this. There's a human reason I just mentioned. There, they're in awe of Jesus Christ. Even the officers in the temple, they're like, man, this, this, this guy's something special. They saw it. They heard it. They, they were convinced by it. But there's also a divine reason, and the divine reason is this. It wasn't his hour yet. We're going to see that again in 820. These words Jesus spoke in the treasuries he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. See, he, it wasn't God's time frame yet. Jesus was untouchable, until he wasn't untouchable. And as one commentator said, they couldn't lay a hand on him yet because the father's hand was over him. Well, in six months, the father is going to remove his hand and he's going to allow them to take Jesus. And he's going to allow what happens to him in his beating. He's going to allow what happens to him on the cross. And then he's going to burst forth the stone three days later and raise him from the dead and vindicate him. And so this is the encouragement that we see. So, so it's just fascinating. They want him, but they can't get him. And the reason they can't, again, human side, divine side, God's not letting it happen yet. It's not on his time frame. Because, oh, by the way, God made a prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 to the exact day when the Messiah would be cut off. And so God's got the clock going. He knows when he can remove his hand and allow him to be taken. It's not yet. It's six months from John chapter 7. It will be. And that's what we see. But what's really funny, I, I just get a kick out of this verse. Verse 45, then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why have you not brought him? And then verse 46, again, just really funny. The officers answered, no man ever spoke like this, man. Just an incredible statement. It ought to just um, cast your mind into an awe of Jesus Christ. To, To hear him speak was enough for these hardened officers to say, we're not touching that guy. He's too special. He's too unique. He, there's something about him. I don't feel good about taking him. In fact, what was Pilate's response when they tried to corner him into killing Jesus? He's like, I don't want to touch this guy. So his wife's like, don't have anything to do with this guy. There was a uniqueness about Jesus all throughout his life that people just simply recognized. Now, when you look at this verse, I, I think I've mentioned this before, but the chief priest is just a synonym for the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were the more secular of, of the two religious leader groups, you got the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were more secular, Hellenistic. They had adopted Greek cultures. They didn't uh, take the Bible literally. Um, there are a lot of things that they did differently than the Pharisees. But they, by this time in history, they were in charge of the temple compound. They controlled security on the temple con- compound, organization on the temple compound. They were kind of in charge of the temple compound. And so they were in charge of these officers. They, along with the Pharisees, formulated uh, basically what became known as the Jewish Supreme Court, known as the Sanhedrin. And so they had ordered these officers to go get these men. And so the officers needed to report back to the bosses. And the officers here uh, were temple guard. Uh, They reported the Sanhedrin kept order in the temple complex. If something had, had kind of got out in the control, somebody came in, was causing a scene. These were the men that would go in and settle 
that, pull people down, calm them down, arrest people. We also know in the Old Testament, they're described that they guarded the gates. And so they prevented intrusion into the gates. You can kind of see them described in 1 Chronicles chapter 9. They were probably Levites themselves. They weren't part of the, uh, the priestly duties, but they were part of guarding the temple. But clearly they had returned empty-handed from their assignment. They were sent out to grab a man. They came back, their hands were empty. They didn't have Jesus. They're getting questioned here as to what's going wrong. When we fast forward six months, when we get to John 18, it's these very men that, that are going to be involved in the detainment of Jesus Christ. They're going to be with Judas in full force out in the garden with you know, torch, uh, torches to see their way. So they will be involved at some point. But again, it just speaks to the point that it was not God's timing. It wasn't the right time here in John chapter 7. And so they had given instructions. They're like, why haven't you brought him? And, and this is basically what they're going to say because he's one of a kind. We've never heard anybody speak like this man speaks before. I love it because sometimes when you get caught red-handed not doing something you're supposed to do, what's the natural tendency of most of us? It's to lie, if we're being honest. You know, that doesn't change when you get older, by the way. <laughs> the first temptation's a lie. Uh, in fact, when's the last time someone texted you and the text, you saw it, but then it got buried? And you, you forgot. And when it, haven't you been tempted when they confront you on that? Oh, I never saw your text. I mean, okay, maybe it's just me and T. <laughs> that never happens to the rest of us. We're never tempted to do anything like that. Well, here you got these officers. I, I love these guys. They don't make any excuses. They didn't say, oh, we tried to get to him, but we couldn't quite reach him. His disciples were in our way protecting him. Uh, the crowds were too big. We, we, we couldn't find him. They, like, they didn't give an excuse. They just literally came forth. This man, I, we ain't never heard no one speak like this before. This guy's unique. This guy is one of a kind. So they, they had simply chosen not to arrest him. That's what their choice was. And they weren't making any excuses about it. I, I love what one commentator said. He said, they had gone to arrest Jesus, but Jesus had arrested them with his words. I think that's a great description of what happened. They were spellbound listening to Jesus Christ teach. What did they heard? Well, we, we, they may have heard all of it, but we don't know. We know at least they heard from verse 32 forward how Jesus would leave and go somewhere. His audience would not find him. And then his great declaration on the last day of the feast that he, he offered living water. So they had heard all these things. They probably already uh, had heard the buzz surrounding Jesus. They probably, as they walked looking for him, heard the conversations going on, the excitement, the reports of what he had done, what they had seen him do, what they had heard he had done through somebody else. I mean, all of these things, they're taking this in. And so they knew deep down, they're not just dealing with the average Joe. They're not just dealing with the average deceiver, the, the average person that the religious elite are upset with. They come back, they're empty-handed. The religious leaders are like, oh my goodness. And, and you could just see them thinking, are we gonna have to do this ourselves? <laughs> are we have to go get him ourselves? You know, they're so upset. And because they are, they just let it rip. They're incredibly frustrated. They can't get done what they wanna get done. They just start allowing accusations to fly. They're, they're kind of losing control. And you know, this is probably uh, the worst feeling for religious legalists on earth is when they lose control. When they lose control, they lash out. When they lose control, they get violent. When they lose control, they get incredibly angry. And it's not just true of Jewish religious legalists in Jesus' time. It's true of religious legalists in our day. You take something out of their control, and they will flip out. They can't handle it. They will never sing the song, Jesus, Take the Wheel, because they want the wheel. They don't want Jesus to take the wheel. They want the wheel for themselves. Sorry for the country music reference. All right. Accusations are flying. Verse 47 through 49. Then the Pharisees answered them, are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Notice who takes the leadership in this questioning now, this accusation. It's the Pharisees. They jump in here over and above the Sadducees, who really the officers report to the Sadducees. Technically, if we were looking at an org chart, but the Pharisees jump in, they start rebuking the officers, and they present these three accusations or arguments. The first one being, are you also deceived? Notice the word also, because what are they basically doing? They're throwing the entire crowd under the bus. They're basically looking out on the people of Israel, and they're saying, look, they're all idiots out there. 
Are you deceived like all those idiots out there? I mean, this, this is a very harsh way to, to speak about the people. This other group that was deceived, again, was the lay people. And because the officers didn't hate Jesus like they did, because they had not grabbed him like they were instructed to, the Pharisees insinuated that they had been deceived as well, that they were believing the crowds more than believing uh, the leader's evaluation. Second accusation is, have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? Believed in him, same phrasing Jesus has been using. So they're now they're picking up on what Jesus is saying. Now, have, have any of us believed in him? And, and the point is this, the Jewish religious leaders were not convinced to rely on Jesus. They weren't convinced by his words. They weren't convinced by his works. They said, we're not, gonna, we're not trusting in him. Now, it's, it's so interesting because it's somewhat of an arrogant and high-minded argument, isn't it? It's like, well, the people that really know their stuff are not believing in this guy. All you idiots are. That's kind of what they're saying. They're really putting them down. And they're also using a peer pressure argument. We haven't been tricked by Jesus, have you? We, we're not deceived by this. Are you deceived by this guy? It's, it's this peer pressure put down to say, you know, we're the elite. We know everything. We studied Hebrew. We've studied the scriptures. We know this guy can't be the Messiah. Do you think he can be? So it's this way of putting it down, saying that they're dumb enough to believe it. They're basically saying no educated person or no person of importance could ever be convinced by Jesus. That's what they were saying to these officers. By the way, this was simply not true. It, it just was a flat out lie. This is not true. Because we know that the Pharisees, uh, at least fair-minded Pharisees, actually gave Jesus some consideration. We learned that all the way back in John 3, right? Nicodemus, we're going to see him again in a minute. This man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Fair-minded Pharisees would consider what Jesus was doing, would consider the miracles that he was doing, would consider what he was teaching. We see that illustrated Nicodemus. So they're, they're not telling the truth there. Also, we learned later in John 12, now whether these people had believed at this time in John 7 or not, that's debatable. But we know in John 12, 42, it says, nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. Quite frankly, they're, they're speaking, uh, even in speaking for the entire group of Jewish religious leaders, they were wrong. There were some that believed in him. There were some that were considering his claims, but they, they don't care about the facts. You know, like don't, <laughs> their mind is made up. Don't confuse them with the facts, right? It's kind of like our political scene today, oftentimes. This third accusation is the crowd does not know, uh, this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. And see, they don't know the Old Testament like we do. We're the elites. They're just the little peons that don't know anything, right? This is kind of their, their argument here. Again, it's one of spiritual and intellectual elitism. The crowd's clearly not as biblically literate as they are, educated as they are. Thus, they're accepting Jesus as a deceiver. If you had any form of education, you would never accept this man. That's kind of their argument that they're putting forward here. This phrase, does not know, it's the word means to come to know, gain knowledge over time. So not only are they saying they're, they're, they're foolish, that they're, they, they don't know anything, they're actually making a statement is that they hadn't even taken the time to get to know the word of God. In other words, it'd be like a Pharisee say, well, I, you skipped synagogue, you know, last week. So you don't, you know, I've, I watch you. You're not coming to synagogue. You're, you're not getting to know the word of God. You're not growing. It's kind of, kind of their argument here. They're, they're saying these guys aren't even trying uh, to get to know the word of God. And one of the things you learn in the Old Testament is that the acceptance of a deceiver or a false prophet brought a curse. The leaders, in their view, already condemning Jesus as a deceiver, as a false prophet, they were simply announcing that the crowd is under a curse right now because they're even considering what he had to say. It's so funny, too, because this crowd thought they were doing really good hiding and keeping their interest in Jesus quiet. You remember back in verse 13, it says, however, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Apparently, they were unsuccessful keeping it quiet. Apparently, there was something in their face, <laughs> this excitement, this buzz about Jesus. They just couldn't hide it anymore. So the leaders knew that they were starting to buy in. And so as the Pharisees are scolding these officers, as they're just ripping into these guys for not bringing Jesus in, a voice of reason comes out of the ranks of the Pharisees, and that's Nicodemus. But we're going to see he gets shot down as well. 
In verse 50 and 51, we read this, Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night being one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing. Now, that phrase there, being one of them, Jesus, uh, Nicodemus is one of the Pharisees, but also implies he's one of the Sanhedrin, a very elite position in Judaism, part of the, the Jewish Supreme Court, if you will. This is Nicodemus. He simply asks a question. He resurfaces from John 3. This is, there's about a year and a half between John 3 and where we're at in John 7, although we've only flipped the page a couple times. It's about a year and a half distance. And so Nicodemus shows back up and he asks a very reasonable and rational question. He doesn't outright defend Jesus. He doesn't get on Jesus' side and put his neck on the chopping block, but he kind of subtly from the back says, wait a minute, are, this man, should we give him a chance to kind of give his case? It's kind of the, the idea that he asks. And, and when we talk about judging, it means forming or giving an opinion after you hear the facts, after you've separated the facts, and then you consider the facts. You make a decision on the facts. And he's saying, we haven't even given this guy a chance to explain himself in an official way. And so he was a member of the Sanhedrin. Uh, Again, this was part of their duty as a court system. You know, people would be alarmed today in the American justice system if someone was just thrown into prison without a trial. We'd be like, what? You can't do that, right? That's justice. Well, here they are. They're condemning a man without giving him his proper opportunity. And the implication Nicodemus is making is, have you guys really listened to him? Have you guys really taken the time to investigate his miracles or life? Have you taken time to clarify Micah 5.2 with him? If you think Micah 5.2 condemns him, bring him in and ask him about Micah 5.2. You claim to be the Christ. You didn't grow up in Bethlehem. What's up with that? And Jesus probably could have, well, probably he would have explained it to him, right? They would have got it. They weren't even taking the time to do that. Apparently they'd heard enough sound bites again, Modern culture, right? Well, that's all we need is sound bites to really know what's going on. They, they had heard enough sound bites to get what they felt they needed to remove him from the scene. And as we'll see in the next verse, the Sanhedrin was already functioning under mob rule. They had already determined their course of action and nobody better get in their way. That's frightening. Even if you oppose them, you would be suspected of capital crimes. Now, by the way, this is true. This is true in the first century. It's true today. Where do you go in an argument or where do people go in an argument when they've been effectively shut down, their opponents making too much sense, using too much logic and has all the facts on their side? Where do you go in an argument when that happens? You go, you go to a personal ad hominem, as they call it, attack. You attack the person and the character. And guess what they do to Nicodemus? They do the same exact thing. Mankind hasn't changed in years. And we thought it was just our political system that did this. It's been going on for years. It's mankind's response. When you're backed into a corner with logic, facts, and truth, if you don't, if you don't respond to the truth, you're going to come out swinging in a very personal attacking way. And this is what they do to Nicodemus. Verse 52, they answered and said to him, are you also from Galilee? Search and look for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. This question in and of itself is a put down to Nicodemus. This is a, I don't know if we have an equivalent of this in our day. I mean, I, I could make a joke now, but I might offend somebody. It's like you're from a certain area that no one thinks is, is highly valuable. You're from a certain area, like you're, you're from the wrong side of the tracks. You don't typically advertise that when you go to a dinner party, right? Oh yeah, I'm from over there. Galilee was kind of like this. Remember what Nathaniel said in John 146, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth, out of Galilee? Philip said to him, come and see. And so the mindset that nothing good can come out of Galilee. And so what did they just tell Nicodemus? Oh, you must be from Galilee. It's a put down is what they're doing to Nicodemus. Now, notice they didn't answer his reasonable, logical, legal question. They just blew past that. They didn't even address what he said. They're like, oh, you're one of the, you must be a Galilean if you're defending this guy. It went straight to a character attack. And what's interesting is it's the flaunting of the technicalities of the law that we see here that's going to assist them in their kangaroo court approach to Jesus' arrest six months from now. They're literally training themselves here in John 7 for what they're going to do to Jesus in John 18, 19, and 20. They're just skirting. We're going to get, when we get there, you're going to see how many of their own laws and rules they broke to condemn Jesus Christ. And they didn't even care. Because at some point, they think they know what's best and they're going to do anything to get it done, even if it means breaking their own laws, they're going to do it. And this is where they're at right now. They're going to break common laws for the common good 
uh, of others, and others meaning themselves. They're going to do what's best for themselves and break laws along the way. And notice what they do. This is another thing people do when, when they're presented with an argument and facts. They try to put the burden of proof back on you. This is exactly what they do. They respond to Nicodemus. They give him two commands, two challenges. Search means to search, investigate, explore, attempt to learn something by careful investigation or searching. They said, Nicodemus, you go back to the word of God and you prove to us why a prophet can come from Nazareth. Secondly, it kind of goes with it. Look means to see with perception. And so the challenge is simple. We don't even have to investigate his claims, Nicodemus, because there's no prophet that comes out of Galilee in the entire scripture. So we don't even have to look at Jesus. We don't even have to give him legal, legal rights that he is entitled to. And he's like, and then they say, and if you know someplace, let us know. That's the argument. They put this burden of proof on Nicodemus. What's really interesting is they use this word has arisen. No prophet has arisen, perfect tense, meaning in the past with results continuing in the present. They're basically saying no prophet has ever come out of Galilee. Now, what's so interesting about that is when you look at the scriptures, even this was wrong because a very famous prophet came out of Galilee, Jonah. You can write this down, 2 Kings 14.25, the Gath Heaper, which is where Jonah's from, is up in the, in the Galilean region. Jonah had come there, and there's also arguments to be made for Hosea and Nahum also being from the Galilean region. So they're not even right about this. There were prophets that had come out of Galilee. And so in their mind, their assumptions led to a lack of further investigation. Tradition led to a lack of further investigation. We're going to close right there, but as we turn into chapter 8 next week, we're still in the same scene. We're still here just days after the Feast of Tabernacles, right in that time frame. He's still in Jerusalem, and we're going to see that he continues to teach, and he continues to rev up the Jewish religious leaders. You'd think if you knew somebody was trying to kill you, you'd probably get out of Dodge. Jesus stays around for a little bit. John chapter 8 starts with a woman about to be stoned, and it ends with Jesus about to be stoned, and both of them escape the stoning. But let's go ahead and close there with a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you for your word and just, just the opportunity, Lord, to, to look at you in the scriptures, just to enjoy how others even viewed you, listening to you teach, and just how we long to be with you one day. And Lord, just so grateful for all that you have accomplished uh, for us, all that you continue to do in and through our lives. We just consider it a privilege to understand and to know what the scriptures teach regarding your death and resurrection for each one of us. We just consider it a privilege, Lord. We, we know from your word that we are not worthy, not even on our best day, that our salvation is, is on the basis of grace alone, that you have provided us something there that we don't deserve. We just express our hearts of gratitude and thankfulness, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.